Chapter 101 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 101. One morning, Porpora summoned her earlier than usual into his apartment. He had a joyous air and held an enormous letter in one hand and his spectacles in the other. Consuelo shook and trembled through her whole frame, thinking it was at last the answer from Riesenberg. But she was soon undeceived. It was a letter from Hubert, the Porporino. This celebrated singer announced to his master that all the proposed conditions for Consuelo's engagement had been accepted, and he sent the contract, signed by Baron Prolnitz, director of the Theatre Royal at Berlin, and only requiring Consuelo's signature and his own to complete it. To this was added a kind and even respectful letter from the Baron himself, who engaged Porpora to take the direction of the King of Prussia's chapel, with the permission at the same time to bring out as many new operas and fugues as he pleased. Porporino expressed his joy at the prospect of being so soon able to sing along with a sister in Porpora, and warmly invited the maestro to quit Vienna for Sanssouci, the delightful abode of Frederick the Great. This letter was a source of joy, and at the same time of perplexity to Porpora. Fortune, it would seem, was about to smile upon him at last, and kingly favor, then so necessary for the success of artists, awaited him alike at Berlin, whither Frederick invited him, and at Vienna, where Maria Theresa made him such brilliant promises. In either case, Consuelo must be the instrument of his victory. At Berlin, in impressing the public with a favorable idea of his productions, at Vienna, in marrying Joseph Hayden. The moment was now come to place his fate in the hands of his adopted child. He gave her the option of marriage or departure, but at the same time was much less urgent in pressing on her acceptance the hand and heart of Beppo that he had been the evening before. He was somewhat tired of Vienna, and the idea of being appreciated and feasted by the enemy seemed to him a sort of vengeance, the effect of which he highly exaggerated, it is true, upon Austria. In short, Consuelo having said nothing about Albert, and having apparently renounced the idea of a union with him, he much preferred that she should not marry at all. Consuelo soon put an end to his uncertainty on the score of Joseph Hayden by telling him that for many reasons she could never marry him. In the first place, he had never asked her, being engaged to his benefactor's daughter, Anna Keller. In that case, said Porpora, we need no longer hesitate. Here is your engagement for Berlin drawn out. Sign it and let us set out for there are no longer any hopes here, unless you submit to the Empress's mania for matrimony. This is the price of her protection, and any refusal would sink us to the lowest point in her esteem. My dear master, replied Consuelo, 
with more firmness than she had hitherto shown toward Prophora. I am ready to obey you as soon as I can, satisfy my conscience on one important point. Certain relations of affection and esteem, not lightly to be broken, connect me with the Lord of Rudolstadt. I shall not conceal from you that, notwithstanding your incredulity, your raillery, and your reproaches, I have kept myself, during the three months I have been here, free from every engagement opposed to this marriage. But, after a decisive letter which I wrote six weeks ago, and which went through your hands, certain events have taken place which lead me to believe that the family of Rudolstadt have given me up. Each day that passes adds to my conviction that I am freed from my engagement and at liberty to devote myself to you. You see that I accept this destiny without hesitation or regret. Nevertheless, after what I have written, I could not feel satisfied without a reply. I expect it every day. It cannot be long now. Permit me, therefore, to defer the Berlin engagement until after I receive. Ah, my poor child, said Porpora, who, at his pupil's first words, had leveled his batteries, which were already prepared. You will have long to wait. The reply that you expect I have received a month ago. And you have never shown it to me, exclaimed Consuelo. You have left me in this state of uncertainty. Master, you are very strange. How can I confide in you if you deceive me thus? In what have I deceived you? The letter was addressed to me, and I was enjoined not to show it to you until after I saw you cured of your foolish love and disposed to listen to the voice of reason and the dictates of propriety. Are those the terms that were made use of? exclaimed Consuelo, reddening. It is impossible that Count Albert or Count Christian could thus have designated a friendship so calm, reserved, and proud as mine. Terms are nothing, said Porpora. People of the world always speak in polite language, but the purport of it was that the old count was not at all anxious to have a daughter-in-law picked up behind the scenes, and that when he knew that you had appeared here on the stage, he forced his son to give up the idea of such a degrading connection. The good Albert listened to reason and set you at liberty. I see with pleasure that you are not annoyed, that everything is for the best, and hey for Prussia. Master, show me the letter, said Consuelo, and I shall sign the contract immediately after. The letter? The letter? Why do you wish to see it? It would only vex you. There are certain follies which we must forgive in others as well as in ourselves. Forget all that. We cannot forget by a mere act of the will, replied Consuelo. Reflection assists us and points out motives. If I am repelled by the Rudolstadts with disdain, I shall easily be consoled. If I am restored to liberty with expressions of esteem and affection, I shall still be consoled, but in another manner and at less cost. Show me the letter, then. What can you be afraid of, since, in either case, I shall obey you? Well, 
I will show it to you, said the malicious professor, opening his secretary and pretending to search in it for the letter. He opened all his drawers, shook out all his papers, but this letter, which had never existed, was nowhere to be found. He feigned impatience, while Consuelo really felt it. She began herself to rummage, and he allowed her to do so. Porpora then endeavored to recollect the wording of it, and improvised on the instant a polite and decided version. Consuelo could not suspect her master of such systematic and prolonged dissimulation. We must state, for the honor of the old professor, that he dissembled very badly, but the candid and unsuspecting Consuelo was easily persuaded. She at last concluded that in a moment of abstraction, Porpora had lighted his pipe with the letter, and, after having returned to her chamber to utter a short but fervent prayer, and vow eternal friendship on the cypress to Count Albert, even if his conduct toward her had been such as the letter stated. She returned tranquilly to sign an engagement for two months at Berlin, to commence from the end of the current month. This was more than sufficient time to arrange for their departure. When Porvora saw the freshly written signature upon the paper, he embraced his pupil, and saluted her solemnly as an artist. "'Today is your confirmation,' said he, "'and were it in my power to make you utter vows, "'I should dictate an eternal renunciation of love and marriage. "'For now you are priestess of harmony, "'and she who devotes herself to Apollo should remain, "'like the muses themselves, a vestal virgin.'" I feel that I ought not to vow celibacy, said Consuelo, though at this moment it seems to me that nothing would be easier than to make such vow and keep it. But I might change my mind, and then I should regret a promise which I would be unable to break. You are the slave of your word, then? Yes, you differ in that respect from the rest of mankind, and I believe, did you make a solemn promise, you would religiously hold by it? I believe I have already given proof of that, my dear master, for since the day of my birth I have always been under the dominion of some vow. My mother taught me, both by precept and example, that kind of religion which she carried even to fanaticism. When we were traveling together, she was accustomed to say to me as we approached the large cities, My little Consuelo, if I am successful here, I take you to witness that I make a vow to go with bare feet and pray for two hours at the chapel which has the greatest reputation for the sanctity in the country. And when she had been what she calls successful, poor soul, that is to say, when she had earned a few crowns by her songs, we never failed to accomplish our pilgrimage, whatever might be the weather and at whatever distance was the chapel in repute. That species of devotion was not indeed very enlightened, nor very sublime. But nevertheless, I look upon those vows as sacred. And when my mother, on her deathbed, made me swear to follow her injunctions, she knew well she could die tranquil, in the full confidence that I should keep my oath. At a later period I promised Count Albert, not to think of any other but him, 
and to employ all my strength to love him as he wished. I have not failed in my promise, and if he did not now himself free me, I should have remained faithful to him all my life. Leave your Count Albert alone, if you please. You must think no more of him, and since it appears that you must be under the dominion of some vow, tell me by what one you are going to bind yourself to me. Oh, Master, trust to my reason, to my character, to my devotion toward you. Do not ask me for oaths, for they are a frightful yoke to impose upon oneself. The fear of breaking them takes away the pleasure one has in thinking and acting well. I shall not be content with such excuses, returned Forbera, with a half-severe, half-jesting tone. I see that you have made alls to everybody except me. And since from mere good nature, without any feeling of love, you bound yourself by such weighty promises to Count Albert of Rudolstadt, who was a perfect stranger to you. I shall think it very strange if, on a day like this, a happy and memorable day, in which you are restored to liberty and wedded to your noble profession, you refuse to make the smallest vow for your old teacher and your best friend. Oh, yes, my best friend, my benefactor, my support, and my father, cried Consuela with emotion, throwing herself into Porpora's arms. Porpora, who was so chary in showing tenderness that only twice or thrice in his whole life had he displayed his fatherly affection without concealment or reserve. Yes, I can truly make, without terror or hesitation, the vow to devote myself to your happiness and your glory, while I breathe the breath of life. My happiness is your glory, Consuelo, as you well know, said Porpora, pressing her to his heart. I cannot conceive of any other. I am not one of those old German burghers who dream of no other felicity than that of having their little girl by their side to fill their pipe or knead their cake. I am not an invalid. I require neither slippers nor potion, thank God. And when I am reduced to that state, I will not consent that you devote your days to me, as you even now do with too much zeal. No, it is not devotion which I ask of you, that you know well. What I demand is that you shall be with heart and soul an artist. Do you promise me that you will be one, that you will combat that languor, that irresolution, that sort of disgust which you experienced at the commencement of your career? I promise solemnly, and be assured also, my dear master, that you shall never have cause to charge me with the crime of ingratitude. Oh, as to that, I do not ask so much, replied he, bitterly. It is more than belongs to human nature. When you are a prima donna, celebrated in every nation of Europe, you will have promptings of vanity and ambition, vices of the heart from which no great artist has ever been able to defend himself. You will long for success, no matter how purchased. You will not resign yourself to obtain it by patient perseverance or to risk it for the sake of remaining faithful either to friendship or to the worship of beauty in its highest and purest forms. You will yield, as they all do, to the yoke of fashion 
In each city, you will sing the music that is in favor there, without troubling yourself about the bad taste of the public or the court. In fine, you will make your way and will be great notwithstanding, since there are no other means of seeming so in the eyes of the multitude, provided that you do not forget to choose your subject with care and sing well when you have to undergo the judgment of a little coterie of old heads like myself, and that, in the presence of the great Handel and Bach, you do honor to Porphyry's method and credit to yourself. It is all that I ask, all that I hope. You see, I am not a selfish father, as some of your flatterers no doubt accuse me of being. I ask nothing from you, which will not be for your own happiness and glory. And I care for nothing that relates to my personal advantage, replied Consuelo, touched by her old master's words. I may allow myself to be carried away in the midst of success by an involuntary feeling of intoxication, but I cannot coolly think of planning a whole life of triumph in order to crown myself therein with my own hands. I wish to procure glory for your sake, my dear master. I wish to show you, spite of your incredulity, that it is for you alone that Consuelo labors and travels, and in order to prove to you at once that you have calumniated her, since you believe in her oaths, I swear to you to prove what I assert. And by what do you swear that, said Porpora, with a smile of tenderness which was still mingled with a shade of distrust. By the white hairs on the sacred head of Porpora, replied Consuelo, drawing the old man's silvered head to her breast, with all a daughter's affection and kissing it on the brow with fervor. They were interrupted at this moment by Count Hoditz, who was announced by a gigantic Hayduck. This man, while requesting permission for his master to present his respects to Porpora and his pupil, looked at the latter with an air of attention, uncertainty, and embarrassment which surprised Consuelo who was unable to remember where she had seen that good-natured, though somewhat odd face. The Count was admitted and presented his request in the most courteous terms. He was about to depart for his manor of Rosewald in Moravia, and wishing to render that residence agreeable to the Margravine, his spouse, was preparing a magnificent festival to surprise her on her arrival. In consequence, he proposed to Consuelo to go and sing for three consecutive evenings at Rosewald, and he requested that Porpora would be pleased to accompany her in order to assist in directing the concerts, performances, and serenades with which he intended to regale the Margravine. Porpora alleged, as an excuse, the engagement he had just signed and the necessity he was under of being in Berlin on a certain day. The Count requested to see the engagement, and as Porpora had always found him civil and obliging, he gratified him, admitting him into the secret and allowing him the pleasure of commenting and giving advice upon it, after which Hoditz persisted in his demand, representing that they had more than sufficient time to make all the necessary arrangements without failing in the time fixed. You can settle everything in three days, said he, and travel to Berlin by way of Moravia. 
It was not the direct road, indeed, but instead of proceeding slowly by way of Bohemia, through a country badly supplied with post horses and lately devastated by war, Porper and his pupil would thus arrive quickly and easily at Rosewald, in one of the Count's carriages and with his relays, in short, at his trouble and expense. He promised also to conduct them from Rosewald to Barduwitz, if they chose to descend the Elbe to Dresden or to Truden, if they decided to go by way of Prague. The facilities of traveling which he offered them would so far tend to shorten their journey, and the considerable sum which they were to receive would enable them to pursue the remainder of it with more comfort. Porpora therefore agreed to the proposal, notwithstanding Consuelo seemed somewhat disinclined to it. The terms were arranged, and the time of departure was settled for the end of the week. When Hoditz, after respectfully kissing Consuelo's hand, had left her alone with her master, she reproached the latter with having so easily yielded. Although she had no longer anything to apprehend from the Count's impertinence, she could not help feeling some degree of resentment against him, and never went to his house with pleasure. She did not like to tell Porpora of the adventure at Passau, but she reminded him of his sarcasms upon Count Hoditz's musical discoveries. Do you not see, said she, that I shall be condemned to sing his music, and that you will have to direct his cantatas, and perhaps even his operas? Is this the fidelity which you would have me display for the culture of the beautiful? Come, come, said Porpora, smiling. It will not be so bad as you think. I expect to be famously amused, without the patrician maestro suspecting it in the least. To perform these things in public, before a respectable audience, would be a shame and a disgrace. But it is allowable to the artist to amuse himself, and he would be much to be pitied if he was not sometimes permitted to laugh in his sleeve at those by whom he gains his bread. Besides, you will see the princess of Kombach there, whom you like, and who is truly charming. She will laugh with us, though she seldom laughs at all at her stepfather's music. There was nothing for it but to give up the point, make her arrangements, and say farewell. Joseph was in despair. Nevertheless, a stroke of good fortune, a real gratification for an artist, helped to compensate him or at least to turn his attention from the pain of separation, while performing a serenade beneath the window of the excellent comic actor Bernardoni, the famous harlequin of the theater of the Corinthian Gate. His performance struck this amiable and excellent artist with admiration and surprise. He made him come in and asked who was the author of the original and agreeable trio. On learning the truth, he was astonished at the young composer's youth and talent, and at once confided to him the music of a ballet which he was writing, and which was entitled The Devil on Two Sticks. Hayden worked indefatigably at the tempest incidental to the piece, which cost him much labor, and the remembrance of which made the good old man smile even when eighty years of age. Consuelo sought to amuse him and dissipate his melancholy, 
by always talking to him about his tempest, which Bernardoni wished to be terrible, and which Beppo, never having beheld the sea, did not know how to describe. Consuelo pictured to him the Adriatic in a storm and sang the mournful plaint of the waves, not without laughing with him at those imitative harmonies which required to be aided by blue cloths, shaken from scene to scene by vigorous arms. Listen, said Porpora to him one day, in order to put an end to his uncertainty. You might labor a hundred years with the best instruments in the world and the most intimate knowledge of winds and waters without being able to translate the divine harmonies of nature. This is not the province of music. It is merely guilty of folly and conceit when it runs after noisy effects and endeavors to imitate the war of the elements. Its nature is much higher. Its domain is that of the emotions. Its aim is to inspire them, as its origin is from their inspiration. Think, then, of a man abandoned to the fury of the waves and a prey to the deepest terror. Imagine a scene at once frightful, magnificent, terrible, the danger imminent, and then musician. Or I should rather say, human voice, human wailing, living and thrilling soul. Place yourself in the midst of this distress, this disorder, this confusion and despair. Give expression to your anguish, and your hearers, intelligent or not, will share it. They will imagine that they behold the sea, that they hear the groaning of the riven timbers, the shouts of the mariners, the despair of the hapless passengers. What would you say of a poet who, in order to depict a battle, should tell you in verse that the cannon uttered, boom, boom, and the drums, dub, dub? It would be a better imitation than any image, but it would not be poetry. Painting itself, that descriptive art par excellence, does not consist in servile imitation. The artist would trace in vain the dull green sea, the dark and stormy heaven, the shattered ship. If his feelings do not enable him to render the terrible and poetical whole, his picture will make as little impression as any alehouse sign. Therefore, young man, Inspire your whole being with the idea of some great disaster. It is thus you will render it moving to the feelings of others. He continued to repeat these paternal exhortations, while the carriage, now ready to start, was being packed with the traveler's luggage. Joseph listened attentively to his lessons, drinking them in as if it were from the fountainhead. But when Consuelo, muffled in a cloak and fur cap, came to throw herself on his neck. He turned pale, stifled a cry, and not able to witness her departure, he fled and hastened to hide his grief in the depths of Keller's back shop. Metastasio, by degrees, conceived a friendship for him, perfected him in Italian, and compensated him, in some degree, by his good advice and generous services for Porpora's absence. But Joseph Long continued to sigh with bitter regret for the loss of his tried friend and sister, Consuelo. She, on her side, although sincerely lamenting her separation from her faithful and amiable fellow pupil, 
and feeling at first considerably dejected, found her spirits and courage gradually revive, and her poetic aspirations once more spring to life as she penetrated into the mountains of Moravia. A new and brighter horizon seemed opening before her. Freed and unfettered from all unfriendly ties, she saw herself at liberty to pursue her cherished art, and she inwardly resolved to devote herself, heart and soul, to its elevating and refining culture. Porphyra, restored to the hope and the cheerfulness of his youth, thrilled her by his eloquent declamations, and the noble girl, without ceasing to love Albert and Joseph as two brothers, whom she humbly hoped to meet once more in the mansions of the blessed, felt her bosom bound lightly as the lark, which soars aloft with swelling note to salute the rising day. End of chapter 101